Welcome back to Emmaism, a philosophy podcast for students of philosophy, because that really is what we all are, seekers of knowledge. Happy New Year. I know we're almost about a month into it, but I'm back podcasting because it's my last semester as a philosophy major at Penn, and I have a lot of content to go over, so I'm excited. Today, I'm going to be talking about a philosophical concept that I've been increasingly interested in, ideology and ideological state apparatuses. So last semester, I took a class on Indian society and culture, and it was an awesome course. I ended up doing some digging into the caste system, and I thought how I could connect it to a philosophical concept. So I came up with the idea to answer the question of whether contemporary caste in India is an ideological state apparatus. In this podcast, I will argue that contemporary caste in India is an ideological state apparatus, an ISA, and the identification of caste can equitably aid efforts to mitigate the omnipresent caste discrimination as it points toward an initial starting point of education. Moreover, once we're able to identify some kind of structure as an ideological state apparatus, the project of emancipation becomes clearer and initiated ideology critique in educational institutions. Now, now what I mean by ideology critique is the critique of ideology as first conceived by Marx and Engels. Scary names, I know, but there's no direct English translation of this German word without extending this distinct concept by making it into some short phrase, like the emancipation from ideology, which is why I'm choosing to employ this original vocabulary of ideology critique. So first in this podcast, I'm going to overview contemporary caste in India and all to say's ideology and ideological state apparatuses. You might remember this. I've gone over this before maybe three or so times, but I'll be qualifying what an ISA is and positing that caste in India satisfies those conditions using um, uh, Zelliot's work. Uh, she's a scholar in India. Um, and finally, all that is summed up to the ultimate aim of establishing that the identification of caste as an ISA is helpful um, as the use of education can emancipate subjects. So prior to the defense of my argument, I feel like a brief historical context of caste in India and the conception of ideology raised by Al Tusay in his 1970 essay should probably be overviewed. So that's what I'm going to do now. The caste system has existed in India for over 3,000 years, and it was originally structured for Hindus. And, um, you know, just to the brief scope of this podcast, I'm only briefly mentioning the religious significance of caste. I'm mostly interested in the political significance. But caste is a form of graded inequality, and it establishes a system of hierarchy largely based on occupation, although purity was originally the basis of hierarchying in India, in ancient India. Um, and graded inequalities invoke the concept that there are multiple tiers that dictate the quote-unquote category of people. Rather than a binary division, there are always people above and below others in the hierarchy, um, unless you're obviously at the very, very top or the very, very bottom. Nearly all Indians today identify with a caste, regardless of their Indian, uh, or regardless of their religion, sorry. Most Indians, about 68% of them, identify themselves as members of lower castes. Additionally, 34% of all Indians identify as Dalit, which is the preferred name for the most socioeconomically disadvantaged caste group in India. Self-identification is very important for the maintenance of the caste system, as Bimrao Ramji Abedkar, the head of the Indian Constitution Drafting Committee, asserted in his Annihilation of Caste Speech in 1936. 
In this way, the caste system isn't merely a division of labor. It's also a division of laborers. That's something he said. Very famous quote. The contemporary presence of caste relies on this perpetuation of division through self-identification and historically caste prejudicial stereotypes toward others' caste identifications. Despite the 1948 legal banning of negative discrimination toward individuals on the basis of caste and the subsequent 1950 solidification of that ban in the Indian Constitution, the caste system continues to be practiced in parts of India. In Northeast India, it's estimated that about 40% of the Dalit population experiences caste-based discrimination, and about 40% of higher caste members would not accept a Dalit neighbor. These are striking statistics, and the contemporary caste system in India is indeed still a prevailing mode of discrimination and self-identification, just by the numbers we see. And so I'm just going to move on to ideology, because then we can get into the bulk of my argument here. Ideology represents the imaginary relationships of individuals to their real conditions of existence. Louis Althusser, in his 1970 essay, Ideology and Ideological State Apparatuses, holds that there exist ideological and repressive state apparatuses in society which function to preserve oppressive social relations of power. This is loaded, but ideology has a material existence as a result of the participation of subjects in constructing its history as a functioning state apparatus, whether it is repressive or ideological. I see ideology in India as having a crucial role in dictating individuals' experiences in the contemporary caste system. Ideology gives a particular identity to its subjects as being participants in its reproduction. State apparatuses that disseminate ideology can only exist within the practices of individuals, so everyone's complicit in a way, even though they are victims. This destination for ideology is made possible solely by the subject's participation that reinforces beliefs perpetuated by the apparatus. It's kind of just a reproducing circle. The caste system can be understood as an ideological state apparatus, and caste identity is a manifestation of the consciousness of the caste ISA. By employing Althusser's conception of ISAs, I am attempting to demonstrate the use of critical theory to analyze historically prevailing systems of injustice and oppression. Critical theory is essential to the project of emancipation of ideological subjects, as it guides them to change their practices and beliefs by providing alternative perspectives for viewing one's condition. So, I developed a four-condition list of the necessary qualities of an ISA, which follow from Althusser's 1970 essay. For the purposes of my project and in alignment with Althusser's work, an institution is an ISA if and only if it satisfies the following conditions. For one, it has to be a distinct and specialized institution. Secondly, it has to actively contribute to the reproduction of material conditions of subjects. Three, it doesn't massively and predominantly function by violence. And four, it ought to function beneath the ruling ideology. So we'll just go one by one. For one, caste, while it is pervasive across many religions in South Asia and the diaspora, the Indian contemporary caste system is still distinct and specialized. At over 3,000 years old, it is the oldest social hierarchy still in existence in the world. By virtue of its age, its pervasiveness is unmasked in history. The distinctiveness of the contemporary Indian caste system also lies in the intranational caste subdivisions. That is, while there are four main divisions, the Brahmins, priests and scholars, Kshatriyas, soldiers and rulers, Vaishnas, merchants and farmers, Shudras, laborers and servicers, and those who fall outside the caste system, Dalits, the divisions do not remain consistent throughout the Indian subcontinent. The Jati 
caste system of dividing the caste levels into approximately 4,000 gradations explains the fact that different parts of India's will have varying organizations of the caste groups. So Southern India's caste um, division is of a three order. The Brahmins, non-Brahmins, and Dalits demonstrate this feature. So we see how it can vary. Additionally, each caste in their internal hierarchical establishments has its own customs, traditions, diets, dress, and rituals, which stem from historical conceptions of purity. Now, contemporary dietary habits based on caste historical hierarchical conceptions of purity exemplify this. Brahmins have historically practiced vegetarianism, and most, over 50% of Brahmins, still do today. The motive behind this vegetarian diet of Brahmins resulted from the Hindu concept of ahisma, which is the absence of the desire to kill, a pure disposition to have. Other caste systems across South Asia do not demonstrate, um, uh, or I guess determine, hierarchical gradations based on concepts of impure and impure, which is what makes India's system unique. So, it is unique and distinctly specialized as an institution. So let's consider two. Material conditions. Material conditions most nearly mean the aspects of a period of time that influences actors' lived experiences. The caste system undoubtedly satisfies this condition in, in virtue of its structure. The caste system was prima facie organized by profession. This organization loosened up at the end of the 20th century, but higher castes are still disproportionately represented in various high-earning jobs and promising educational opportunities. For example, in contemporary India, Brahmins are disproportionately in software engineering jobs and government positions. They're found attending higher education institutions at a disproportionately higher rate when compared to other castes. Additionally, the Gautama Sutra reinforces the investment in the reproduction of subjects' material conditions in the caste system. This is a sacred text. It states that people belonging to different classes and orders of life who are steadfastly devoted to the laws proper to them, to the fruits of their deed after death. As a significant religious test, the Gautama Sutra ties an individual's temporal adherence to caste conventions and thus a corresponding profession to an eternal significance. According to this, by participating in reproducing the material conditions that affirm one's caste identity, individuals can adhere to religious expectations and thus have the security of knowing that they have participated well enough to enjoy the merits after death. So indeed, participants are contributing to their own material conditions. So the caste ISA satisfies condition three because it does not also massively and predominantly function by violence. While individuals in lower castes have historically experienced violence against them, the occurrences of caste-based violence have recently decreased. Instead of violence, the contemporary caste system primarily functions by disseminating ideology. The functional practices that sustain and make possible the function of the caste system are endogamy and other related social practices. Um, <clears throat> endogamy ensures that the division of laborers is self-sustaining. The reproduction of caste identity is what sustains the currently prevailing caste system and connected discrimination. In fact, in 2011, the rate of intercaste marriage was reported to be less than 6%, and that was only about 10 years ago. The percentage has not gone, gone up significantly since then. Social practices constraining the social relations of women also make possible the endogamous unis, unit levels of jati. Continued endogamous practices can at least partially be explained by the 2019 statistic that 53% of women report not going outside the home regularly. 
and only 20% of women participate in the labor force. Those are shocking statistics to a feminist like me who, who really enjoys seeing women participating in the socio-political environment of any country. So we see that endogamy is um, kind of uh, brought about by constraining the choices on women's involvement in society. So condition four will also follow. The structure of the current caste system is necessarily hierarchical, and this discrimination occurs against those who occupy lower classes, um, you know, beneath the Brahmin class and outside the body-based framing. The initial organization of the Varnas include this four-tiered hierarchy and designates also who occupies a social space outside of the formal hierarchy. Um, the caste system necessarily functions beneath the ruling ideology in this way. We can see that um, you know, the anatomical definitions that correspond to a body, the original framework for caste, makes the oppressed caste clearly fall underneath the ruling class. To motivate this further, individuals who grow up Brahmin report not experiencing caste discrimination and also report very low occurrences of discussing caste and caste inequality regularly. And individuals who occupy positions in the ruling class do not discuss oppression because they're not seeing the oppressive practices firsthand. The discrimination is most profoundly felt like the felt by the Dalits and people who identify with the lower castes. The Dalit caste itself means the oppressed. Moreover, in the aforementioned Gautamana Sutra was written by a Brahmin, and its language and content reinforced the ideas that individuals ought to be active participants in the reproduction of their material conditions. It seems clear that the caste system and oppressive ideology that is perpetuated from it functions beneath the ruling class. So it seems as though the contemporary Indian caste system does satisfy conditions one through four and qualifies itself as an ISA. So let us first reconsider the definition of ideology as representing the imaginary relationships of individuals to their real conditions of existence. Ideology acts in a screen, as a screen in this way, distorting subjects' views of their lived experiences to match a perception that keeps them oppressed and others elevated. People generally desire to know the truth of their material conditions and they don't like to be taken advantage of. Being the subject of an ISA governs one's possibility for their lived experience, and to be part of an ideology creates major constraints regarding what one is able to achieve. This is especially seen in India's caste ISA. Individuals' marriages, education, and occupation opportunities are all dictated by the dissemination of caste ideology. Increasing intergenerational education levels has been linked to the decrease of social practices that support the main maintenance of the caste ISA. Researchers have found that the education level of a groom's mother in an Indian marriage correlates with intercaste marriage rates. The more education a mother receives, the more likely her son will marry someone from another caste and, in turn, will not sustain the historical endogamous practices that disseminate the ideology further. The Indian public school system is distinct also in the way that it explicitly teaches critical thinking and problem solving, not only skills of language, science, and mathematics. The National Curriculum Framework for Indian School Education developed policies for public teaching that aims to enable students to make connections between core scholastic concepts and how they perceive their lived experience. In particular, this framework explicitly emphasizes guidelines that promote epistemic values, which is a very compelling word to have in some national guideline, which includes the value orientation toward the use of strong justification and comprehensive examination of evidence. The Indian public schooling framework seems to have existing adequate framework to at least begin the project of emancipation from ideology. 
increased education will lead to more opportunities um, for people to engage in practices that go against the prevailing traditions of the caste system. If increased education and consequential non-adherence to traditional caste expectation becomes a trend, then ideology critique will necessarily occur. As the more one's experiences and practices deviate from historical material conditions, the more they will be critical of the conditions that make the expectation so. Movements toward teaching each other ideology critique and mobilization to encourage others to recognize ideology start with the individuals who recognize it for themselves, but it only takes one catalyst to help others realize that they too are subjects of an ideology. The call for formal ideology critique would have to be initiated on a very local and narrow level too, since the education system can be understood as an ISA. And due to the scope of this podcast, and because I don't want it to get too long, I'm not able to flesh out a complete objection to my argument. My significance claim rests less on the fact of using the education system specifically for ideology critique, and more on the fact that the education and the ability of education in and of itself to emancipate individuals from ideology, and then relying on the enlightened to impart the information on a mass, that's what's critical then a mass's knowledge would demonstrate that the educational ISA has no choice but to provide formal teaching on ideology critique. That being said, my suggestion is for people to first go against the ISA, and if one goes against the norms of the state apparatus, they may find themselves in a double bind, in a worse position power-wise, to actually change the social relations of power. I posit, though, that while it will take time and perseverance beyond many individuals' double binds, education will impact a critical mass large enough to put pressure on the educational ISA to teach ideology critique that aims to stop caste-based ideological preparation. Um, although the education system can also be argued to be an ISA, even its current form, higher levels of engagement in higher education has been linked to a decrease in ideological caste-affirming practices, like endogamy and profession deviation. So combating the current Indian caste ISA does not specifically require ideology critique. It may only be required, um, or only may require increased involvement in education. The thing is, though, education has been proven to make substantial improvements in changing material conditions of individuals, so that's the important thing. Um, there are already, already Dalit movements for increased education and initiatives by the federal government to increase Dalit and other lower caste presence in um, higher education. There are caste reservations in central government-funded higher education institutes where nearly 50% of available seats are reserved for underrepresented castes in higher education. Although progress is slow, education opportunities are becoming more accessible to individuals of lower caste because of this advocacy. So that's it for today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to take a look at my book, How to Excel in Undergraduate Philosophy. It's on Amazon and in all other major bookstores in both print and digital. That's all I have for today's episode of Emmaism. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep searching for the truth.